When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. Welcome to the Barcelona Podcast, episode 85, Unmissable Opinions, brought to you by the most influential voices in the FC Barcelona community. Thanks again for tuning in. You can tap on your app and check out the show notes to subscribe to the show. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, at the Barcelona Pod or at HiltonD13. For me, I'm Dan Hilton. He's Frances Tomas, formerly of ESPN FC and The Guardian fame. And today we've got a special show. It's our post-El Clasico special, where Frances is going to be joined by Deanna Christine. And you've heard her before. She's helped with the Ronda and did an interview in her own right. And then our interview today is American journalist named Mike L. Goodman. And you may have heard of him as he is formerly also of ESPN FC fame, currently The Ringer, Ashton Network, HQ, and plenty of other publications. Well, anyway, I don't want to waste any more time. I think it's my turn, Frances, to say the Barcelona podcast starts right here. Right. Thank you, Dan. Um, Once again, we've got the brilliant Diana Christine from basically Twitter, Queen of Twitter, Barca Twitter, whatever you want to call it. And we are delighted to have you back. Your opinions are always valued. And as you know, I'm a big fan of of what you do. So thank you for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you for having me again. Always a pleasure to do this. Absolutely. The pleasure is all ours. Um, I'm pretty sure there are no prizes to work out what actually we're going to talk about today. There seemed to have been a classical match yesterday that some people may have watched. So, Diana, we're going to pick your brains. Um, general question to start. What did you make of El Clásico yesterday? Uh, 
that's i mean it kind of fitted in with uh, both the seasons that the teams had in the sense that neither of them had really good seasons uh, based on how they played i mean barca has made, has been more consistent and more resilient than madrid at least in the league so it wasn't that far away from what they've been doing all season in la liga but um I didn't think it was actually a, I mean, it was an entertaining game, but in terms of like tactical approaches and stuff, it wasn't all that great. I mean, we are, we are the generation that experienced the uh, Pep Mourinho uh, classicals, so I guess nothing will ever mount up to that. But I just feel like everything since has been just a, continuous downgrade in terms of tactical quality they they're basically good teams who have i mean they're good teams in the sense that they have good players and a basic tactical structure and that's about it absolutely i think it's hard to disagree with that um there was a key moment that unbalanced the game i mean at the end of the first half you had messi and suarez and sergio ramos getting very very heated and out of nowhere, Sergio Roberto decided to do something that, in a way, is out of character and changed the game. So how did you see Sergio Roberto's red card and was that the decisive factor of the whole game, do you think? I think that, in a way, uh, I mean, it was definitely a, gal- a galvanizing factor for Barca because until that point, they they had actually played worse than Madrid with 11 players on the pitch. And that whole end to the first half just basically got them all so mad and uh, got their pride going and their ego and their orgullo so that they decided to basically prove what they're made of in the second half and they came out just flying. And I think that it was really weird for Sergio Roberto to do that. Actually, I saw footage today that showed that he just like hit Marcelo's shoulder or something or his back or whatever and he just exaggerated but whatever it was a hit, he did hit him i mean throw his arm at him and that was out of character but in the moment uh that the whole game was heated up as you said with the plays before with uh, uh suarez and ramos and then with messi and ramos and with alba and modric and with uh, Bale and Tuntiti, and it was all just basically blowing off. And it was very, very weird. It really was, and in a way, in a strange way, it was entertaining as well for the neutral, but obviously us Barca fans don't necessarily enjoy a game that's out of control, and particularly, as you said, the game 11 against 11, it wasn't necessarily going away either. So I actually do think, I do agree that it did wake us up a little bit. Following Sergio Roberto's red card, um, Valverde had a choice to make and he decided to introduce Semedo as right back and he took off Coutinho. Do you think that was a good choice? Given how Coutinho had played in the first half, I think that was pretty reasonable. I mean, playing on the right side of the midfield is not exactly his position. He had basically made little to no impact on the game and I didn't think that it was such a weird thing to do especially since he needed someone on that right side of the pitch who could defend so yeah okay so um 
I, I was watching the game with Peña Blaurana London here in, in London, obviously. And I want to sort of send a huge shout out to Eduard Manas and the president and all the members of the board for the hospitality. And a lot of people on the board, um, Bar and Co, obviously, where we watch the games, they were saying, you know, Dembele should have come on. And we were sort of puzzled that he didn't come on at all. I mean, even Alcácer was chosen in front of him. How do you see that? I think that by this point, I mean, basically the season is almost over. We have three games left, but it's fairly obvious that Valverde doesn't trust him, his decision-making, and basically just doesn't want him or trust in him to play in these kind of games, which is a shame given his ability, but I can't say it's that far off from the reality. I mean, I... I accept that Dembele has a lot of qualities, which I honestly do hope that he will show in a Barca shirt because I think that we need those qualities. But I also at the same time recognize the fact that he hasn't shown the very best of himself during this season. So I can understand how Valverde might think that uh, other options could be better given the fragile state of the game and the fact that even though we've already won the league at this point going unbeaten i mean there are three games left i mean even yesterday there were four, four games left i mean this has to be the objective for the rest of the season because regardless of how we might feel right now going unbeaten through a whole league campaign is something that will be in history you know so I, I accept that this is an objective that the team can have for right now and that this is why he wants to be able to trust the players that he sends on the pitch. And for, what, for all the reasons of this season, he isn't able to do that with Dembele. I mean, I don't actually, you know, like put the blame solely on him or solely on the player. It's been a really bad situation for everyone involved with him being injured and with the late transfer and just everything. This has basically been a lost season for him and I will reevaluate everything after the summer preseason and we'll see how it goes from there because in my opinion both him and Valverde need to work on everything he has left to learn and into getting him really integrated into the team. I'm, I'm with you. I think Given his youth, obviously, we're always, whenever we talk about Dembele, we're always going to think about the amount of money that he cost us, which in a way is not going to help anybody really. But I really do hope that, as you say, over the summer there's conversations, there's more tactical depth to, to those and they put everything in practice because Dembele has a lot to offer. I think his speed, his ability to run a defender is second to none. I think obviously his decision making in terms of the final pass needs to improve. But, you know, he's young and there's time and hopefully... Hopefully we can, as you say, see him succeed at Barca. Um, you did mention in passing there about winning La Liga and beaten being important. Um, throughout the whole year, I've been saying it doesn't really matter that much. But obviously now we're out of the Champions League, which is still hurts and it's probably going to hurt forever. I think it would, be, it would be an achievement that, as you say, will go down on history. But um, how much weight do you put on it? Do you see it as a consolation prize or something that actually does have value? I see it as something that has a value of its own. I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing will ever erase that night in Roma. I mean, literally, 
everything can happen and that will still be there and that will still hurt forever and ever and seeing Barca playing like that will just be a constant nightmare so it won't be like a consolation prize but at this point I mean if we made it so far this has to be the objective I mean even before everything you know I mean we had like I don't know how many games we had left before we played Roma. But anyway, it was conceivable that we would finish the league season unbeaten. And I understand how that could be an objective. But the most, the, I don't know, like the thing that was the most important for me in the light of Roma and everything that happened and us winning the league, I think that there was a statement at one point from Valverde, which in which he said that basically after the Supercopa and stuff, that no one was actually expecting us to get here, which is fair. I mean, consider the fact that we might be more critical of the team, but remember that in the Classico last season, when we won 3-2, Piquet was telling the players that they're so much better than Madrid and all that stuff. And after the Supercopa, he was actually admitting publicly to the press that the, for, for the first time in nine years, he felt inferior to Madrid. I mean, this was the psychological point that we are coming from. I mean, not just the fact that we didn't think that the team could do it, but the team actually considered themselves inferior to Madrid. That's huge from a psychological point of view, from a team that has won everything and done everything. So... I accept the fact that he might have chosen for this season to just focus on stability. And I do expect more from him for next season. So, yeah, I think that winning the league is right now an objective. I think that it will be something that will live in history regardless of everything else. I think that there are separate issues. For sure, and obviously going from that fiasco in La Supercopa in obviously last summer to winning, well not winning, but coming back to a game and not being beaten in a game in which we played so long, like 45 to 50 minutes with just 10 men against 11, and some people argue 12 at times, but you know, we're going to leave that to the side. It actually is remarkable. I'm talking about Piqué as well. He... He's fun. I mean, I know you love him because you're always tweeting about him and Piquet this and honey and all that stuff, which is which is brilliant. Um, but um, Piquet had a great idea at the end of the game uh, during the celebrations to have the staff giving the players a guard of honor, un, un pasillo on the way out. Uh, what do you make of all that? And obviously Madrid's refusal to actually honor the league champions. Yeah, I thought that it was very lame that Madrid didn't do it, given the fact that they're in the Champions League final. I mean, if they win that, no one will care that they give us a pasillo. I mean, literally, it will be just a side note on the side of their season. I mean, we would care and we would laugh at them for like two weeks until the Champions League final, but then, you know, it's all up to them. So I think that it was really dumb on their part because they made this all a whole thing. If they just would have said, like, yeah, okay, Barca won the league fair and square, and we're going to respect the tradition and give them a pasillo, and sure, it would have been humiliating because a part of it for rivals is 
this humiliation is accepting that you were so inferior to your opponent that you actually lost the league before you had the chance to play them. So this, I think that it would have been a smart move on their part to just get it done and get it over with. And I think that they were stupid to make this a whole bit big thing that it didn't need to be. As for Piquet, I think that the gesture after the game was kind of unnecessary, but it's, you know, lots of the things that he does are unnecessary, but it, that's just him. I think that we could have lived without that improvised pasillo at the end. I mean, the coaching staff didn't even know about it, and I thought it was all a bit kind of awkward. But, you know, it was a joke, so I'll take it that it's that. Yeah, and we and we do love him for it. I mean, it is a matter of... I would say years until he becomes president and little tiny things like that, you know, they are deep rooted in Gules hearts all over the world. I thought it was quite funny. It's basically because of the situation and he's got the ability of making a little bit of a, in a way, immature jokes about what, what actually does go on. And if you see about the way that he relates to the Madrid players, obviously he was teammates with Ronaldo back in Manchester United, but his relationship with Ramos, etc. I think people read into things way too much and, uh, He's got an easy way, a funny, silly, childish way even, out of situations like that, which I think is quite special for him. Now, you mentioned in passing there as well, the Champions League final. Obviously, regular listeners to the pod know that you're a huge Liverpool fan. In fact, I believe Liverpool is before Barca in your heart. So, do you think you guys have a realistic chance of actually beating Madrid in the final? First of all, just to clear stuff up and not have people come after me, Liverpool are not the head of Barca. I mean, they're both on equal footing. If they would both play, I would literally have like no allegiance. Fair so, enough. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm happy no, you clarify that. Good. I have <laughs> I have no direct preference between them, but I mean, like, because they're both, you know, like how I treat players, like they're my children and stuff. Because they're uh, if. Liverpool were to win this season and then play Barca next season in the Champions League, like I would be more inclined to want Barca to win because Liverpool won it this time, you know, (laughs) just to make it kind of fair. Right, we've cleared that up. I'm happy you did. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So anyway, uh, regarding the Champions League final, I think that... uh, it's going to be really difficult because Madrid are, as I keep saying, they're not a very good team, but they just keep winning games. <laughs> so they have a lot of quality that they can hurt teams with regardless of how they're playing. I mean, Madrid could, to an extent, do what Chelsea did yesterday to Liverpool and just hit them on the break with, like, I don't know, Lucas Vazquez and Asensio and stuff. And, you know... That would be a, an acceptable game plan for them because they don't really care about style that much and dominating games and all that stuff. Liverpool have the ability to hurt Madrid if they stay higher up the pitch and they have space to run into, but I, I'm i going to assume that they not, they're not really going to allow them to do that that much. It depends on how much... Madrid value their ego, I guess. I mean, playing on the front foot and being dominant and stuff because Liverpool thrive off that. It's basically how they beat, they beat City because they accepted the fact that they would have to defend longer and just hit City on the break. And City 
being a pep team, is not a team that will sit back regardless of circumstances. I can see Madrid accepting to do that in order to deny Liverpool space. So, yeah, I think that they both have weapons that they could use to hurt each other, but I think that Madrid probably have more weapons. So, I don't know, it's going to be really difficult for Liverpool, and I hope that the about two weeks that they will have off between the last league game and the Champions League final will help them get some of their energy back because right now the squad is really thin. There there are plenty of injuries, especially in midfield, and they're kind of running on fumes. I mean, Firmino and Mane have like 4,000 minutes played or something. For sure. So I'm going to press a little bit more then. Can you give us a prediction, scoreline prediction for the Champions League final? Oh, God. <laughs> this is really difficult because it goes with all my, you know, basically paranoia about Madrid in the Champions League and uncertainty about Liverpool because they always, you know, build me up and then tear me down again. So, I don't know. I Hopefully, I can see it being like a 2-1 for Liverpool's or something. I mean, that's my most optimistic hope. Yep, and that will have millions of coolers jumping and celebrating and cartwheeling all around the world. So I think we're going to go with you. And um, if it is a 2-1, <laughs> you heard it here first sort of thing. Diana, that's everything we've got time for today, unfortunately. But obviously, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always. Where can our listeners follow your work online? Uh, I'm mostly on uh, Twitter. And uh, if I write something, they'll just find it there. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. And I really do hope we can celebrate a Liverpool victory in two or three weeks' time. From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> Thank you. A pleasure to be joined on the line now by Mike L. Goodman. You might know him from a lot of different publications. He's half of the Double Pivot Pod, which if you're not listening to it, you can just check out their Twitter page, at Double Pivot Pod, and then I'll get it in your ears as well. You can listen to it after ours, as well as reading him in either Action Network HQ, 538, or The Ringer. And for me, Mike, the first time I ever read your stuff, and the reason I told Francis I really want to get this guy on the phone for the pod, the podcast is because of your work in Grantland, which was a lot of long-form soccer stuff that you don't see a lot. So I'll correspond that to the first question I have to ask you, is that obviously you're a U.S.-based journalist just like me, and obviously soccer is not seen as a premier sport here in the U.S., even though it's grown so much in both of our lifetimes, but the coverage does pale in comparison to the other major sports, and obviously it's usually not very lucrative. What made you want to write and cover the sport professionally, and when did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, the, the simple answer is that I, I've lived all over the world. Um, my, my wife's job takes us all over the place. I've lived in Mexico. I've lived in Europe. Uh, when I first started writing for Grantland, I was, I was in fact living in Europe. Um, so that, that's part of it. The other part of it is that I'm, I'm primarily a stats writer, or, or at least that's a large part of what I do. And when I started, I started writing, um, you know, sometime professionally, sometime back, you know, around 2014, 2013, there was, there was not a ton, you know, analytics and stats and soccer were just sort of beginning to develop. So, that, I mean, that was a large part of the draw for me was sort of, I had seen this develop in other American sports. I grew up a fan of American sports and a nerdy kid. I mean, this is what I did. This is how I sort of interacted with sports. And so I saw this happening in soccer and I felt like I was particularly well equipped 
to work, you know, work in that intersection. And that's really what I've been doing over the years. Yeah, and a lot of our listeners are accustomed to reading those publications that focus on Barcelona solely. Obviously, this is the Barcelona podcast, but a lot of the publications are focused solely on the sport of soccer. So when I talk about the different places you worked, including 538 currently, The Ringer, and then previously on Grantland, what is it like working for those places or working with your managing editors where soccer isn't really the primary focus? And how do you go about pitching these different ideas to try to make soccer based with, as you said, through stats, an interesting thing for, uh, we'll say, an American audience at least? Yeah, it's, it's, it can be different. And I've done both, right? I, I've, I've also worked at ESPN FC, um, where, where, you know, I was one of lots and lots and lots of soccer voices. It, it, it can depend very much on where you are. I've had editors who are tremendously knowledgeable soccer fans, and, and then it's, it's a very collaborative process where if I'm the primary soccer voice, it's a lot of, you know, talking things over during the week. What are the big stories? What's undercovered? You know, where, where do we feel like we have something unique to add? Or there have been publications I've been at where, where really I'm bringing the, the bulk of the soccer knowledge, and then it's, you know, it, it's me talking to them and sort of helping guide them through what I think the biggest and most important storylines are. It works either way. I think the world gets smaller, and I think that lots of, of publications now that we would think is, you know, American publications where soccer might be an afterthought, there are usually people on staff who have, who have good working soccer knowledge at this point. Yeah, that's very true. And the last question I'll ask you before we really delve into Barcelona, because, again, this is the Barcelona podcast. That's why we brought you on. But before that, I just want to ask, with the World Cup coming up, and I know you can't really give us any spoilers about the way that the places that you work are going to be handling the World Cup. But in terms of, again, having your work, you know, being expected to be read by a lot of U.S. fans, is there a different approach this year in terms of how you're going to be covering the World Cup knowing that you might be losing a lot of ears and eyes and people, again, trying to look for that material? Yeah, it's it's certainly different. I think that without the U.S. and the World Cup, it really, it re- and I've, I've had this discussion with several editors, it really, it's important to bear in mind that there are a lot of Americans who follow a team that is not America for various reasons in the World Cup. I mean, you can look at, say, the, the ticket purchase numbers for Russia this summer, and, and I believe the U.S. Is, is second only to Russia in terms of the number of tickets purchased. There is a wealth of soccer fandom in America. It just doesn't necessarily always look like what we expect it to. You know, the you know, Liga Max, Liga Mexico, the Mexican League does better in the U.S. than Major League Soccer does in terms of viewership numbers. There's, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of soccer fandom here, and it's a credit to the U.S. I just think that sometimes it can be easy to overlook it, and that with the U.S. not at the World Cup this this year, it's important to sort of focus on those aspects. Yeah, certainly. And with the end of the club season coming, really, as you said, the focus completely turns on the World Cup. Transfer news gets quiet for a little bit, and even the things that could happen, such as you know, for the Barcelona podcast purposes, you know, Antoine Griezmann, we know, is going to be the big name floating around in Barcelona transfer rumors this upcoming summer. But even that'll go quiet, depending on how France does. And really, it does come down to how these different countries succeed. And with Barcelona, they have players on every major team, whether it's Germany with Ter Stegen or Croatia with Rakitic. Of course, you have Messi in Argentina, Brazil. Spain, obviously, and there's all these different places, but it, things really do go quiet during the World Cup, and it just becomes just a huge focus. And that said, with the way that the club football season is going, 
I guess I'll ask you one more before Barcelona. With the Champions League final upcoming, do you think that can be some kind of springboard with between Mohamed Salah and Cristiano Ronaldo that, that really could be a springboard into the World Cup and almost transition U.S. viewers and English-speaking viewers straight from the club season to the international stage? Sure, and Salah in particular is, is such a dynamic character and, and, and you know, sort of a, a breath of fresh air at sort of the top of the soccer world. Um, I think it's going to be hard for Salah to really progress deep in, in the World Cup tournament. It just, like, there's a reason that it's always the same kinds of teams deep in the World Cup. It's just very, very hard if you're not one of the Spains or Germanys of the world to make a, a, a run to the semifinals. And, and I think, you know, if Egypt can manage to get out of the group stage, which is which is going to be a complicated task, that's a tremendous accomplishment for them. But, yeah, I do, I do think that there's this sort of natural star power that is compelling for, you know, in terms of when you're shaping narratives about what a tournament's going to look like. It's unavoidable, and it's fun. I mean, it, it, it's great to get invested in somebody like Salah in that way. And you know that a lot of Barcelona fans obviously will be it seems to me that a lot of them are going to be pulling for Messi in the World Cup so that he gets his World Cup and that might be just an ego thing based on that everlasting rivalry between Messi and Ronaldo so I guess my first transition into mainly focusing about Barcelona now do you think in the long run and you know with your we'll say lack of club allegiance do you think it's good for the legacies of Messi and Ronaldo to be so closely tied with one another? Or do you think that does keep us from fully appreciating what each individual has done? Because, I mean, I can say for me, obviously, I'm watching yesterday's El Clasico as, you know, a, a Kule, as someone who's rooting for Barcelona. And I don't know how you watch such a messy affair and be completely neutral during those matches without, again, trying to compare the big picture of, of which of those even individual players is better. Oh, I, th- I think I think it, it it doesn't detract from either of them. Um, I think I think within the the sort of the individual look, uh, you know, Akula is never going to fully appreciate Cristiano Ronaldo, nor necessarily should they. And and you know, sort of vice versa, you know, somebody who is is a Madrid supporter is not going to perhaps give Messi the full amount of credit that that Messi would deserve. But I think that's natural. And I, I don't think it particularly detracts from either of their, their positions in the game or their legacies. Um, look, I mean, I think when you think about Messi in the World Cup, you know, would I love to see him win a World Cup? Yes. Do I think it, he needs one to validate him? No, I don't. I, I think, I, and, and, and I, but I also don't, I think it's inevitable that these conversations are the kinds of conversations people have about athletes. And I don't think that that would, you know, if Ronaldo didn't exist, Messi, you know, would be compared to somebody else. If Messi didn't exist, it's not like Ronaldo would sit sort of unchallenged at the top of the game. This is what we do with sports and and, and great players. And I think that that's a healthy thing. And I don't really think that, that, that one's greatness detracts from the other one. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. And Frances and I are, you know, we both are adamant basketball fans as well. And um, for me, I almost daily take my intake of Zach Lowe stuff, especially during the NBA playoffs and a former colleague of yours at Grantland. And so, I mean, I would agree with that even in the way that American sports frame LeBron James, who's obviously one of the, the top two greatest players of all time. And yet, because there's no one in this generation to compare him to, he's constantly compared to a guy who played 15, 20 years ago, and now that is a that is the power struggle where it's not even two active players. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, a, a lot of the time when I think of Messi and Ronaldo, the comparison that I go to is um, 
Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux um, in, in hockey. And I, like, I don't think at the end of the day, after their careers ended, there was much doubt that Wayne Gretzky was the greatest player of all time. And Mario Lemieux was one of the greatest players of all time. And to me, that's how I sort of view Messi and Ronaldo. And I don't think it's, it detracts from either of them to say that or for them to have played at the same time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think years after the fact, when all the right. hate, when all the hate has kind of got flushed out of me, I will know that. I mean, obviously, I can admit now that Ronaldo is one of the top three goal scorers ever to play. Most, I mean, to put the ball in the back of the net, how can right. you compare to Ronaldo? And yet, what I can enjoy from Messi is all the different things he does. Now that said, there has been the narrative with Barcelona's thinking right now in the season among you know whether it's Barcelona Twitter. Being knocked out of the Champions League the way that they did seems to have stained the season, and it's a narrative that Francesca and I keep talking about now twice a week, where they could go undefeated in the league still. Obviously, they got past this final major hurdle. Now they just need to finish the season with, you'll say, lesser-named teams. They've already won the title in the league, and they've already won the Copa. And do you think, especially in your time now covering soccer over the last six, seven years, do you think there has been a media shift in the importance of the Champions League? Because obviously now, if Real Madrid loses to Liverpool, Barcelona's season is a success. And if Liverpool loses to Real Madrid, somehow that's a stain on Barcelona's season. Yeah, I understand. I don't know if a shift is the right word. It is certainly a quirk of history that Real Madrid's success has been so concentrated in the Champions League. He's sort of in the current era. I think that there is to a degree I mean it's a major tournament it's a yearly major tournament and Barcelona's I mean Barcelona's lack of success in the last few years is also notable but that said I mean I think that it is much about Barcelona fans expectations for their own club as anything else I mean I do not view Barcelona fans as particularly reveling in the possibility of an undefeated season. It seems to me that they have chosen collectively, for whatever reason, to be more anxious about the performance of this this particular team and, and how they crashed out of the Champions League, which is, of course, notable. I mean, it, it is a fantastically difficult uh, performance to overcome. But, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that it has been a collective choice to interpret this specific Barcelona season as... Um, closer to a failure than a success despite their success in La Liga and to me that's more about how Barcelona fans see themselves and less about uh, the status of the Champions League in Real Madrid and how do you I mean then connecting that right to the kind of players that Barcelona bring in in the transfer window how do you view that dichotomy between the desire that Barcelona fans have and the team itself prides itself on bringing a lot of youth up through and yet we've gone through this you know a few years without truly continuing to break in and the way that a lot of people answer this I'm I'm actually gonna make you delve a little deeper I'm not going to give you the easy out of saying that you know the generation of Messi, Busquets, Iniesta obviously you know we always say it that kind of talent isn't going to happen and I think we're aware of that but why is it that you know there are really no players, even even bench role squad players, coming up from the academy? And do you think the way that Barcelona, being such a major team, whether it's a Real Madrid, a PSG, a Chelsea, when you are a Champions League contending team, do you think it's even possible to nurture and have a majority of your bench being academy prospects that you've now brought up through your system? Is that even possible anymore? Yeah, it's a good question. It's very difficult. Uh, you know, the 
Manchester United's class of 92, the, the Barcelona team with, you know, that brought through Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, you know, Busquets, um, you know, even then they had to go back and bring back PK and, and Cesc Fabregas. Fabregas was a sort of a tangential player. It's the exception, not the rule. Uh, it's not that um, top teams don't have good academies. It's that what a good academy produces is not regularly generations of those level of player. They just produce lots of good players that may not be quite good enough for one of the best teams in the world. Um, and so it, it is, it's important to, to highlight that where Barcelona is coming from is an exception. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't focus on developing youth in some capacity. And I would say that there have been teams and moments where, you know, management goes out and goes too far the other direction and focuses too much on transfers for the sake of transfers. Like, you can be a good team and be, say, building the way Liverpool does as opposed to building the way Real Madrid does. Now, both of them involve lots of transfer activity, but one is built almost exclusively on that, and the other is is a melding of them. And now, to some degree, that's going to be dictated by the talent that comes through your own system, right? Like, on the one hand, you don't want to lose the Tiagos of the world. On the other hand, you can't force-feed the Sandros of the world into the squad, right? The, the, you have to get those decisions right over the course of time but even if you do you're not gonna generally have what Barcelona had over the last decade yeah I agree with that 100% and then so that that'll lead to the last question that I have for you before again we wrap this up is that with Barcelona having to deal with figuring out who they want to be in the future and of course Messi's timeline always looming in the back of everybody's mind how do you think Barcelona should approach the upcoming transfer window in terms of, you know, there's now rumors about Dembele possibly going out on loan and people are skeptical on that. And again, he didn't even feature in El Clasico. And yet, even though Paco Alcacer comes in in the 92nd minute, I think the argument that I've seen the most on Twitter is why didn't Dembele come in instead of Alcacer, even though it was just for that final, whatever it was, a minute and a half that seems to be a striking point that people had. So how do you think Barcelona should navigate this transfer window, whether it's bringing in Griezmann or just trying to stand pat and trust some of the, we'll say, lower-profile-named transfer guys coming in, whether it's Arthur coming over from Gremio in Brazil? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think, I think from an attacking standpoint, the team needs to trust in the big transfers that they've made so that, that they need to trust in Coutinho coming through. They need to trust in Debele coming through. And a large part of the reason why is that it's not just Messi who's getting older at this point. You know, Sergio Busquets is 29. Rakitic is over 30. Um, Busquets in particular has seen his health deteriorate in the last 18 months. And I would be really worried about his longevity. And I think that in general... This team is going to need to be doing a lot of renewal over the next couple of transfer windows, in the next couple of seasons. And, and what that means to me is less trying to add another attacking star and more trying to find a lot of pieces over that, that can feature in a starting 11 as your midfielders get older. Um, I, mean, I think that at least for another year to 18 months, you need to just trust that the 
big money attacking players you brought in are going to come good and figure out how best to support that attacking core. Yeah, I really like that answer, Mike. And so the final question I'll ask you is, not only thank you for your time, but obviously there's a lot of places that our listeners can find your work, but what's the best way that our listeners can follow all of your work, we'll say, in one big swoop, whether it's on uh, Action Network HQ or 538 or Double Pivot Pod? So sure, you can always find me on Twitter, and I'm VM underscore L underscore G, and you'll uh, make sure that all my work ends up there. Um, but twice a week, we do the, uh, the Double Pivot podcast. It's me and Michael Kelly. Once a week is free. Once a week is by subscription. And then I'm writing two to three times a week on Action Network, uh, occasionally at the other outlets you mentioned. And I will have a couple more announcements coming relatively soon as we head into the World Cup. So I'm busy. I'm all over the place. The easiest place to find me is on Twitter and go from there. That's Michael L. Goodman. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. That wraps up another edition of the Barcelona podcast. Thanks so much for both Deanna Christine and Mike L. Goodman to talk to us post-El Clasico as we tried to break that one down and make sense of the season at large. We'll continue to break down this season and see what's next as we, again, round out the 2017-2018 campaign. So Frances and I will be back for another show later this week to do just that. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon before the Barca. Barca. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.